All right. Okay. I did have it on at one point. Okay. <laughs> Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So turn there. We're going to read it together here in a second. Before you look about what, what am I doing? How do I make it stop? I'm sure Karis is responsible somehow. All right. <laughs> well, we'll do the best we can. Okay. A gospel. What is a gospel? So we have Matthew as one of the four gospels. There are three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that work together to tell us about who Jesus is. They're essentially a theological biography about the person of Jesus. But they aren't a biography like you might read about Winston Churchill. We always start with Winston Churchill's family. He's born, his education. He goes into the military. These biographies are a little bit different, right? They focus on key themes, things that are really important about Jesus. They don't tell us the stories in order. Each author has a little bit different emphasis about what's important, right? So when we read Matthew, we're trying to see what is Matthew presenting to us about Jesus and how does it serve us today, right? Matthew seeks to tell us the story of David as the true Davidic king, right? We start out with his genealogy. We find out how Jesus, apparently I can't touch anything, how Jesus was able to be the one who could be the king that was expected, right? We often see in Matthew how man tries to thwart God's plan and how that never works. Um, we see different other things in Matthew, that man cannot triumph over God. We see different people. We have Jesus on one side, Jesus' followers. On the other side, we have the scribes, the Pharisees, demons, people that align themselves against Jesus. So let's read our passage today. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13. Jesus came from Galilee, Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then, amen. Okay, so Pastor promised me that if I was willing to do this, he would scare away as many of you as possible. Um, I, I don't know that he did his job, but... Uh, that's okay, because God's word is powerful, and we're going to go through it today. Now, first, we're going to break this into two sections. We're going to look at uh, verses 13 through 15 as one section, and that will be Jesus' qualifications, and then we're going to look at the second, second section, 16 and 17. So in the first section, Jesus' qualifications, we have Jesus entering the scene, right? John is out in the wilderness of Judea. He's preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, right? And some of the religious leaders come out uh, to greet him and find out what he's talking about. That doesn't go so well. He calls them a brood of vipers. He basically says they're poisonous and they're spreading their poison to the nation of Israel. And in the midst of this, as John is teaching, he's preaching, he's baptizing, Jesus comes. It's the same word that um, we used at the beginning of Matthew 3 when it said, John came. It's the same word that we use, uh, was used in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came, right? It, it portrays a, um, a, a vividness, also a solemnness, that there's something important that's happening that you need to take note of. 
All right. Jesus enters the scene. And we go through the book of Matthew. We have all these different things that lead up to this point. So we start with the genealogy, right? We go through the, the three sets of 14 generations. And in those three sets of 14 generations, it all comes down to one person, Jesus, born of a virgin. It wasn't any normal birth. We have a virgin birth, a virgin delivery, because Jesus was, from the very beginning, special. He was not like you and I. He was created without a sin nature. He was created so that he could be the Messiah, the one that would save us from our sins. We have Herod, who tries to oppose the plan of God. First, he's surprised to hear that there is a king in Israel, which is ironic because you would think that a nation that was under oppression would be waiting for their king. So Herod goes and he asks all the people there, well, what do you know about the, the coming king that is to be born? And they tell him, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. So he sends the magi, the wise men, to Bethlehem of Judea so that they can find the king and report back to Herod. That they're warned, God cannot be thwarted by man. They are warned to go a different way, so they don't, never tell Herod that they found Jesus, the true king. And Jesus is saved. Herod becomes enraged later on, and he sends his armies to Bethlehem with the orders to kill every male child under the age of two. So there's this great massacre that takes place. But God has a plan even in this, so that Jesus, when he is called out of Egypt, will fulfill prophecy. Out of Egypt, he called my son, right? A reference to Exodus 2 and 4, where the Israelites were in Egypt, under the oppression of Egypt. They were slaves. They were unable to fulfill the plan and purpose that God had for them, that they would be a blessing to all nations. So God sends Moses to be his man on the ground to help them with the exile. So out of Egypt, Jesus comes. Out of Egypt, Israel comes. Jesus comes the same way to, meet, to end our exile, our exile, our separation from God spiritually. We have Rama as the next event. Rama was the place where um, Babylon would take all of the people that they were going to send to deport back to Babylonia. It was one of the final times where God's people were taken out of their promised land. And in that, there was great mourning, sadness. Rachel there is pictured as Israel. She's weeping because she's being separated from her children. But Jesus comes, and he ends that. There is no more separation once you are in God's kingdom. And then there's the final prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So as John is preaching and teaching, Jesus comes, and he enters into this story. And he enters with a specific request. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. It's an interesting request because why would Jesus need to be baptized? And Matthew, in his typical sense, doesn't give us an answer right away. Matthew likes to build tension. He likes us to make us wait for this story. John realizes, though, that he is the one who needs baptism, right? He kind of pushes back a little on Jesus, and he says, no, wait, it's not you who needs to be baptized. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you. John realizes he is the one who is sinful. He is the one who needs a baptism of repentance. He is the one that is lesser than Jesus, and he realizes that Jesus is the opposite of everything about John. 
He is sinless. He is God's son. He has no need for a baptism of repentance. He is the Messiah. He's the one that all this has come and pointed towards. John answer, or Jesus answers John's objection this way. He says, it is necessary for now that we do this. I think Jesus' response is, is forceful because of the for now. It's kind of like when your parents would tell you, you're going to do this now, right? There, there's no question. It's, it's going to happen now. I think he recognizes John's objection. He's like, yes, I, I understand what you're saying. John had humility in how he asked, and that's good, but he didn't understand the purpose of Jesus' baptism yet. Well, it hadn't been really revealed, so I, I don't fault John for that. But it leads us back to this question of why did Jesus need to be baptized? What was it that was going to happen because of this baptism? So Jesus answers him, and he says this. <clears throat> Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is an interesting phrase. I've always kind of heard this taught as the righteousness is Jesus, and Jesus always does what he's supposed to, so he fulfills all righteousness. As I was reading um, the verses this week, though, I was struck by the pronoun, right? It's us. So this is actually talking about both John the Baptist and Jesus. So what is it about John the Baptist and Jesus that they do together that fulfills all righteousness? And maybe we have to ask the question, what righteousness are we talking about? These are good questions, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm waiting for someone to answer, but that's okay. Ah. <laughs> uh. we think of it this way, I think it is correct to say that the righteousness is when we have the mind and heart of God so we do the actions and the will of God. That is righteousness. But there's an all-righteousness that we're talking about here. It's definitely bigger than just a, a one-time or just a few events that Jesus and John are fulfilling. And most of the time when we talk about fulfillment in Matthew, we have a, a great Old Testament prophecy quote that sets that up like um, one of the ones actually we, we talked about a few of them one from Rama you know where Jeremiah is, is talking about the deportations right so J Matthew uses that quote so that the people will think back to okay what was Jeremiah saying what was the context <clears throat> of that verse and then they can pull forward that meaning and help understand how Jesus gives a new meaning a full meaning to that sense so in that passage when we're talking about Rama, we can think about, okay, the exiles are back in Israel, so obviously Jesus isn't fulfilling, you know, actual people coming back into the land. But in a, a spiritual sense, Jesus is the one who will end all exiles forever. So we understand how Jesus can fulfill that. So I think when we get to this passage, we're talking not just about one specific prophecy. We're really talking about the body of prophecy and the, the body of thought that went into the Old Testament that points forward to a Messiah. So it's a, it's a lot that's undergoing here. And I think John's a part of that because he is the one who goes before Jesus and prepares the way. And there's prophecy about that too, right? There was a, a prophecy, I believe it was from Isaiah, that someone would go before the king, right? Um, we lived in Saudi Arabia for a while, and we actually would see this happen, right? A prince or somebody would come to town, and suddenly 
the road that looked like, you know, trashy and dusty was beautiful with plants. And it's like, wow, what's happened here? Well, they're preparing the way, right? Because someone special is coming. Well, John is the one who prepared the way for Jesus. So John is part of this fulfillment of all things in the Old Testament that are working together to point towards a true king, not a king of earth, but a king from heaven who will rule and reign the final kingdom. Looking forward to the son, not Israel as the son, because Israel couldn't keep the covenant. They kept failing over and over. So there had to be a new way, a new covenant, where God would manifest himself differently to his people so that his people would be right before God. I have a quote here from um, an old German guy, Delling. He's, really, he's kind of a fun guy to read. Um, but he says it this way, Jesus did not merely affirm that he will maintain them, uh, them being the law and the prophets. As he sees it, his task is to actualize the will of God made known in the Old Testament. So I think when we're saying that John and Jesus fulfill all righteousness, they understood what God was working towards. He understood all the things that were veiled, all the prophecies, what they were about, and then they expressed them in their lives in such a way that you and I can read about them and understand who God was. They expressed them in such a way that people looked at them and their actions and said, you know what, I understand God's plan. I understand God, who God is. I understand his character and nature and how he's worked through human history to provide a Messiah, to provide Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, the one who would save us from our sin. So then in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, we look at God's identification. So in the first part of this, we're looking at why Jesus was qualified to be this person, to be the Messiah, to be the one who would be baptized. And he was qualified because he alone was the one who was sinless. He alone was the one who could save us from our sins. He is alone is the one that we can put our faith and trust in. So how does God the Father then identify Jesus Christ? We look back at the passage and we find out that Jesus was baptized immediately. I kind of thought this was funny. I think John the Baptist, I feel a little sorry for him, right? I think it was kind of like baptizing a cat because you kind of get scratched before the cat goes in the water. You dunk it, the cat immediately jumps out, and you're not really sure what's going on or why it's happening, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of how John was in this time because Jesus is baptized and immediately comes up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. I think Matt or Mark says it, that their heavens are torn open, right? And we have two events that come from that. Both of them are important because both of them express a prophetic sense about what is happening. And I think that's what God intended. I think the, the all-righteousness part is intentionally veiled because he's waiting to build to this dramatic event and then he's going to give us the Old Testament quotes that we would normally expect earlier on so that we can understand what's happening here. So what happens when Jesus is baptized? The Holy Spirit descends from heaven. There's a lot of references to the Holy Spirit. I, I'm going to give you three. We could spend an entire sermon series probably just going through this very subject. But Genesis 1-2, right? In the beginning world is formless void there's nothing there can, that can express the glory of God there's nothing there that can have communion and relationship with God so the Holy Spirit comes and hovers over the waters of the deep so there's an allusion there to the initial first creation a perfect world where man can have communion with God of his own free will 
Then we have Hosea 7.11, where the Holy Spirit is pictured as the true Israel, which is interesting because now Jesus is expressed in Matthew 2 and 3 as the true Israel. They are God's sons now, and no longer do we see the nation of Israel referred to as God's son. And we have Genesis 8, 8 through 12. Noah's experienced the flood. He sends out a dove. Dove comes back with an olive branch and the new creation. A new order has begun. So I think that these things are used together to give us this idea that the Holy Spirit is bringing about with Jesus the new covenant, a new manifestation. And he doesn't just come and remain with Jesus for a while, right? It says in another gospel that I can't remember right now, that the Holy Spirit remains with Jesus. And then we'll see after Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes to all believers and remains with them. That is part now of being in the new covenant. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. The dove descends, he identifies, and he empowers Jesus. Then we hear God's voice. Uh, this is a great, a great part because for 400 years we've had right. We've had silence. We've heard nothing from God since the last book of the Bible, and we've had a lot of history that's happened in between them. We've had a Syrian occupation, a Greek occupation, a Roman occupation. The people have gotten farther and farther from God, and the people are wondering, why isn't God talking to us? Where is he? Where well, he had talked, right, through the whole rest of the Bible. It's just we, we tend to forget the old messages. So don't forget what God has said before. Because there will be times in your life where it seems like God is fairly silent. But God ends that. And not only does God end the period of silence, he is no longer speaking through a prophet. God himself, from heaven, is speaking to all who will hear him. This is my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. So what we have here is two quotes, right? Just because... Matthew couldn't make it easy on us. Uh, the first quote is from Psalms chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2 is a messianic psalm. Both the community at Qumran and other pre-Christian segments of Judaism understood that this psalm pointed forward to the Messiah. So they would study it because they wanted to know the Messiah when he came. They were looking. That may be one of the reasons John was out in the Judean wilderness, because that's where the community at Qumran was. Right? That's where we have all the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they were busy studying and writing and recording scripture for us, that we could now, in our modern time, look back and compare our version of the Bible to a really, really old one. That's pretty cool. Um, there's also other interesting things about the desert, right? The desert is typically a place where we don't expect to find great beauty. We don't expect to find great wonders. We expect to find a lot of sand, uh, maybe a cactus here or there. But God used the desert prophetically to speak of a time when he would do great wonders and he would be moving in the nation. I think God works that way a lot, right? God wants to do these things so that it is clear that it is God doing the action, right? It's not John the Baptist. It's not you and I. It's God's power. It's God's work. It's God's will that is being done in the world. So what then is the second quote? It's from Isaiah 42.1. Um, and I think this one probably holds the most meaning for us. I think it's really, really important. So think back in your minds to what Isaiah is talking about. I know that's hard. Isaiah is a big book, right? Um, there's a lot there. But Isaiah is referenced more in Matthew than any other book. 
uh, Matthew really liked Isaiah. And I think probably because Isaiah talks a lot about the new kingdom, the Messiah, the suffering servant. So Matthew picks up on these ideas and interleaves them in his words so that we would be able to think back to him. So when you think back to Isaiah 42, just before that, we have this section of scripture where God is talking and comparing himself to other false gods. And it's great, right? Because the other false gods, he can point out a lot of things that are wrong with them. One of the arguments he makes is that you can't trust these false gods because they have no answers for the people. They are incomparable when you compare them with God. They can't change human history. They can't answer man's deepest needs. So clearly they're all false. So God sets up a test in Isaiah 42. And the test is basically this. He says, I'm going to prove to you that I alone am God. So how does he do that? I mean, if you're God, you figure out, how do you, how do you demonstrate you're God? So this is the plan. He says, I'm going to send someone, and I'm going to tell you all about him now, so that when he comes, you'll recognize God has intervened intentionally in human history to see his will done. So who do you suppose Isaiah is talking about? All right. He calls him the suffering servant because Isaiah is like Matthew. He likes to make things confusing for us. Now, he calls him the suffering servant because he, that's what he was, right? He was a servant who would suffer. But in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, we're given the first task of the suffering servant. I'll read it here for you. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he establish justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Did you see how God referred to the suffering servant in that first verse? Behold my servant, whom I hold close, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. This is clearly speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom God the Father's soul delights. And why does he delight so much in his son? Well, lots of reasons, right? But one of them is because he has given him a task in this verse to bring justice to the nation because he knows that no human king no human kingdom <clears throat> will bring justice. So God brings Jesus into this world to bring justice. There's two basic ways that he's going to do this. <clears throat> so what are those two ways? Bring me that Gatorade bottle. Apparently I've been talking too much today. So. <laughs> All right. The first way that he will bring justice to the nations, to the entire world, is by speaking the truth. <clears throat> and guess what Jesus does in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, right? This section of Matthew that we've been looking at, it all is working towards Jesus' first discourse. There are five major discourses in Matthew, right? We can, we can study Matthew around these discourses. Matthew 1 through 4 give us the introduction, right? Jesus is being identified so that we know who is going to speak 
And then 5 through 7, we have Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God, right? John the Baptist says the kingdom is at hand. Jesus says, wait, I am the king of that kingdom. Let me tell you what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom. Let me tell you what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And then later discourses will expand upon that until we get to the point where Jesus will explain why he is the one who has to die on the cross in our place for our sin. So the first task of the suffering servant in Isaiah is to teach, is to tell God's message to the nation. And that's what Jesus will do. The second thing he has to do is bring justice. Notice how closely these things are to each other, right? In fact, as you look in Isaiah 42, you're going to find a lot more about justice than anything else. This is typically, if we look through the prophets, right? When you look at how the different prophets talk about the day of the Lord, judgment, final judgment, is how God establishes justice on the world. So I think when John is preaching, hey, the kingdom is at hand. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. This is important. He's saying, as the kingdom starts, you have to understand that means that the judgment part is coming. Right? So as John went before us, before Jesus, to prepare the way for him, so we come after. When we're in the period between when Jesus left this earth and when he comes back in judgment. Right? So we're, we're on the clock. It's counting down. I think that's why this has to motivate what we do as a church. So the suffering servant. He is the one who brings justice. He will express in his first task the truth of God, and he will do it faithfully. He is pictured as an ideal servant because he, he's quiet. He's not one to cause a ruckus. He's going to do the task that he has, and he's going to do it well. And that, to me, sounds like a perfect picture of Jesus. We see different roles that Matthew talks about here. First, Matthew 1 and 2, Jesus is the true king. He is the one whom... All the, the thoughts and prophecies from Samuel through Chronicles through all the major and minor prophets talk about that there is one king who will come about and bring the final kingdom. Jesus is also the Messiah. He is the one who will save the people from their sins. And Jesus is also the suffering servant. The servant is said to both be royal and gentle. He is one who obeys even to the point of death, right? Isaiah 52. Great, great passage about the suffering servant, right? Go, go home and read that as one of your passages this week. One of the other things I really appreciate about this passage is the entire Trinity is on display for us to see, to see God's will done. I mean, this really matters to God. This is super important, right? The Holy Spirit comes, he identifies and empowers Jesus, right? Jesus, none of the miracles, none of the preaching, None of that happens until the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Jesus, even in his human side, needed that. We need that even more, right? Because we start sinful. We start at a disadvantage. We need the Holy Spirit in our life in a real way. We see God the Father speaking. It is his will that is being done. He desires that mankind come into a right relationship with him. That's why he created us, right? That's the whole purpose and plan behind humankind. That's why we're here. And then we see Jesus, right? 
Jesus is the, the hard part. He is the one that is given a task. And his task isn't easy. He's supposed to tell the entire world about God's truth. He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to be a servant. He's supposed to die on a cross for our sins. And then he is the one who will come and judge the world. And he is the one then who will rule and reign forever. Wow. I mean, talk about a big homework assignment, right? Um, that's a lot of stuff. And I think for us, if we lay claim that we want to be like Christ, then we should be involved in those things. Right? Those should be our heart and our mission. Um, yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in the conclusion. So um, the conclusion part, I guess, then is this. John the Baptist, the nation of Israel, those who are listening I kind of wonder if the Pharisees and scribes had stuck around or if they got scared off by being called a brood of vipers. I don't know. But anyone who was there to listen heard from all three persons of the Trinity. They heard from the fullness of God himself. The Messiah has come. Right? His work is beginning. And from this point forward, Jesus will begin his public ministry. And I think People heard, right? Satan certainly heard. What's the next passage that follows after this, right? Satan realizes Jesus' declaration. He realizes God's the Father's declarations. He realizes the Holy Spirit's declaration. He says, this is a problem. My entire plan is about to be undone. Let's test him and make sure that we can thwart his plan. So Jesus is tempted. Most of the time when we declare strongly that we are God's, that we are going to do God's work, right? Satan will test us to see if we're really serious about it. And God will test us to see if we are really, truly God's son. If inwardly we express the thoughts, character, and nature of God. And that's, that's hard to do. I understand. But that's what we are called to do as God's children. We are to express God to the world. So that's how John the Baptist and Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, fulfilled all righteousness. They started the task of saying, here is what you knew of God in the Old Testament. Now here is the very fullness of God in the best way you can understand in your limited human minds. This is who God is. So this is what we are to do. We must understand who God is, what his plan is, what his will is, and then we must express it to those who do not know. I guess we could say at the conclusion this way, encountering Jesus forces you to decide on his identity. Know who Jesus is and identify him to the world as the one who can ultimately solve our biggest problem. And that problem is sin. Jesus is baptized. He is identified clearly as the Messiah. God directly speaks into human, into humanity. So we must know who Jesus is. For non-Christians, this means you have to decide who is going to pay for your sins. Because there's only two choices. You can pay for them yourself, your physical death and eternal spiritual separation from God forever in hell. Or you can take what Jesus has done for you, his perfect life, his death on the cross, 
substituted in your place for your sin. Romans 6, or 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all of us that were not Jesus start in the same place. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So because of that, Romans 6.23 says that the consequence, the wages of our sin, is death. But there's an upside. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Jesus Christ came, Right? Because he wants you to know that God planned a way for your salvation. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, you can be saved. And that's what we want. For all of you, any of you who don't know who Jesus is, who haven't put your faith and trust in him, right? The baptism of Jesus wasn't for sin like ours is. But it's still a great picture, right? Because as we look back on baptism now, we see that we are buried with Jesus. Our sins die. Our old nature is taken away. It is forgiven. And as Jesus rose to life, so we rise in our own new life because of what Jesus has done for us. Who was paying for your sins? You must know. It's either you or your faith in what Jesus has done. So if you are a Christian then, we must encounter Jesus daily. This must be a continual process in our life. So how do we do that? We talked about this in our, our Sunday school class. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. Both of them had entire systems of religion, of, of worship, of Bible study. But yet they were so far off course. It is possible to read your Bible and be wrong. So how do we guard against that? One of the things that we need to do is work on understanding the whole Bible. I know you probably have one part of what you really like. Um, you've got to you've got to know it all, right? So if you read Matthew and you miss all the allusions to the prophets of the Old Testament, you're, you're missing a significant chunk of what Matthew is saying, right? So it's like you're trying to understand based upon half of a manual, right? And if you're missing half of an instruction manual. It's just so much harder, right? Read the whole manual. Understand the whole truth. So start in the Pentateuch, right? Understand what God said about creation. Understand what happened because of the fall of man. Understand why Abram was chosen, why God gave him a covenant. Understand how that covenant moves forward. Understand the Exodus, right? Matthew relies heavily upon the Exodus events. You have to understand why it was a problem that God's people were stuck in Egypt and what it meant for them to be out. Understand why the law was given to us. Understand what it meant as we move through history as Israelites take over and come into the promised land and have the potential to finally have the, the full blessing of God, but yet they fail to do everything God asks. Right? Understand how the prophets looked forward to a time when a new covenant, a new kingdom, a new king would be established. So when you hear Matthew talking about the kingdom of heaven, you say, oh, I know what that means. I, I, I know what the prophet said about that because there, there's a lot of different things. The kingdom of heaven looks forward to a time when Israel, now God's spiritual people, are all united. They're in one place worshiping God together. It also looks forward to judgment. That's what's so scary about the coming kingdom, right? It means that judgment is on its way. It's important that we study the entire testament 
the entire Bible and that we look for meaning within that author's writing. Right? So uh, if we look at the passage we read today, we came across the word righteousness. So we could go then to the Apostle Paul and said everything that Apostle Paul said about righteousness. But here's the problem. Matthew and Paul use the same word, righteousness, differently. So rather than trying to read the entire scope of the Bible, all of Christian thought into what Matthew said, we have to read what Matthew says and understand what he meant to his original audience. Challenging task, no? Well, start with the Old Testament, build upon that knowledge. So read the words of Matthew and say, okay, clearly Matthew wrote this genealogy. It's, it's important. Why did he put it in there? What was he trying to show? Oh, he's trying to show that Jesus is the Davidic king, right? That must be important. So I'm going to write that down in my notebook. And then anytime I find the thought of Jesus being referred to as king or kingly, I'm going to make a note of it so I can develop this idea of kingship. And then I'll make another note for kingdom of heaven, right? So you start in the beginning and you develop and you let the author write the thoughts that are important to him. Right, just don't just jump all over the place, right? Let the scripture develop. It's kind of like when you read um, any book, right? If you picked up a novel and you flip to the middle, it would be very confusing to understand what's being said. Right, start in the beginning <laughs> because that author is going to develop the characters. He's going to develop the plot. Matthew works the same way, right? The Gospels work the same way. Most of the Bible works the same way. Some people think Proverbs doesn't. I disagree with them. That's a different discussion. Come and find me afterwards. <laughs> Let the text develop its thoughts and let those thoughts be your thoughts, right? Well, there's a danger in Bible study, right? Well, I can develop my own theology. When we do Bible study, we want to develop, develop God's theology. God inspired Matthew to write specific words in specific order. Use that to your advantage, right? Let the words of Matthew develop meaning so that you understand what God intended you to hear. Second part of this Bible study is you need to use the people in this building, right? None of us can expound the entire Word of God perfectly. Right? I can barely do a few verses in Matthew. So <laughs> use the people around you. Say, hey, what does it mean when it said Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, right? He might have an idea that I never would have ever thought of, right? You must talk to each other, right? Especially if you're a teacher, if you're teaching a class, you've got to be talking to other people and saying, hey, what does this mean? Let someone challenge you. Let someone bring an idea that you hadn't thought of before. Read books, right? You guys have a, a great advantage. There are more word study books. There are more um, books about grammar where you can actually, like, diagram a sentence. You can see how a sentence interacts with a paragraph. You can see how paragraphs talk about small units of scripture. You can see how small units of scripture are coming to big units of scripture, right? Use all of that. Be determined that your Bible study methods and how you look at God's word tomorrow and next week and the next month is better than it is today. It's like uh, with my job. If I was going to be content with what I know now, I wouldn't last long in my job. My job the stuff that we work with changes often. It's a constant process of being willing to learn new things so that I can do my job effectively. 
how much more so should it be for the Word of God, right? This is how we learn about God. He has revealed himself in the Bible. We have to be willing to dig into it and examine it closely. What does it say? What does it mean? Why did Matthew use that word? Study the Word of God to know who Jesus is. Consult, be challenged by others. Improve how you study the Bible. You know what? Go buy a book on how to study the Bible. Hermeneutics. Fun course, right? There's all kinds of stuff that you can learn. All right. The next part of how do we encounter Jesus constantly? Our humanity must be spirit-filled. Right? I think of the verse in Ephesians 5.18, right, where it has this idea that um, you would notice a drunk man by his drunkenness. He's staggering. He's slowing his words. He's under the influence of alcohol. In the same manner, Christians are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they're weird, that they're different, that they stand out, right? If you're under the whole influence of the Holy Spirit, you will be different. If you're not, you're probably not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You have to seek to get to a point in your life when you're so full of the Spirit's control and influence and power that yourself is pushed to the side and you can not only know what the will of God is, but he's given you the path, the way to accomplish it. Jesus was given his task, and so the church has been given their task. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. They, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Pastor talked last week about individual evangelism. Um, I actually thought he said that we were supposed to do two to five names. So I, I did two because I'm an overachiever. I actually went back and listened, and it was two to five per category. So I was at least six short. And even more ironically, both of the people that I put on my list, like, completely dropped out of communication. <laughs> That's okay, though. I want to focus not so much on individual evangelism. That's super important. You need to do that. But I want to talk about corporate evangelism today. Because the task that God has been given is given to the church. And Mountain States has a specific task in order to accomplish the will of God. Right? If we want to be a part of fulfilling all righteousness, then we have to take the truth of God and find specific ways to express that in our community. So like, if we have a ministry at our church and it has no way to express the truth of God to someone who's lost, that ministry has no reason for existing. The church exists to fulfill the Great Commission. Therefore, all of our ministries exist and must express who God is and his gospel message of hope to a lost and dying world. So you say, okay, that doesn't make sense, Sean. I'm in the nursery. I can't evangelize babies. Well, I don't know. You could try. But here, let me give you this thought. What if in your nursery ministry you gather all your nursery workers and you say, we're going to have a time when we offer to the community where parents can come and drop off their kids and they can go on a Valentine's Day or whatever it is that parents with young kids do. And while they're there, 
you love their children, you find out about them, so when they come back, you can say, hey, I love this about your kid. And you can start to build a bridge. And then you can, across that bridge, ask, hey, have you ever gone to church anywhere? What do you know about God? And listen to them. And through that bridge, share the gospel with them. Hey, did you know that Jesus Christ came to live and to die for you so that you could have a relationship with God? Tell them of the hope of the gospel, right? All of our ministries here corporately should exist to make God known to the lost world. And then as people respond in faith, our ministries should take and start discipling those people so that they can go and tell other people. I mean, isn't that the pattern we see in the New Testament? So how do you take the ministries that you're a part of and make them outwardly focused? That can't, something that's, that can't be something that is only a prayer request, right? It has to be something that you say, I'm taking action on, and I will pray as I take action on it. That's why we're here, right? So that you can say, okay, this is my ministry I'm a part of. I'm part of this class. And this person has this gift. They're really good at that. How can we use that gift, that passion of theirs, to reach into a lost world that wouldn't come into this church on their own, right? Because we're not a country club. We don't just come here once a week because we like each other and we're the same, right? We are the church so that we can reach out to those who don't know who God is and don't understand that there is coming judgment. Jesus had his task. We must find our task. So each ministry of the church must have a way to do outreach. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save the lost. If we are to be like Jesus, our mission must be to seek and to save the lost. Encountering Jesus forces you to decide on his identity. All right, that's what happened in my life when an uncle brought me and my sister to VBS. Neither of us had ever stepped foot in a church before. My parents never had any interest in going to church. I heard about the gospel because one person invited me. I became a Christian a week after that. My parents became a Christians a couple weeks after that. My entire family was saved in the course of a few weeks one person brought us to VBS. It's pretty amazing. So I have a, a, a great passion for VBS because of that. Looks like I'm out of notes. I don't know if that's a good thing or, or not. Um, but I do want you to consider, right, if you're not part of a ministry, well, then go back to the early message of John. Repent and, and find a ministry, right? There's... I don't know if I can find my bulletin, but there, there in the back is a whole bunch of different ways, different ministries you can be a part of. Sunday school, women's Bible studies, well, I guess you, I guess you want me to go to that. Um, <laughs> the men have something they do on Saturdays. So find a ministry and be a part of it. If the ministry that you want to be a part of isn't here, well, start it, right? And then if you're working on your list of people and it's, it's difficult, We'll expect that because the more God is revealed, the harder, the more resistance there will be against it. That's okay. Your job is to tell people about Jesus. Keep doing that. And if you struggle, then go to, go to the people in your ministry group and say, hey, this just hasn't worked for me. They may have a different idea for you or they may have, hey, let's do this event. We can invite these people to them, right? You guys are a community. Work together. Isolated, right? You're not as strong as you are together. God has specifically placed you in ministries here in this church here 
so that you would know other people, that you could use our gifts and abilities. All right, let me close with prayer. My dear Heavenly Father, I am truly thankful that you came into this world. You didn't leave us in a state of lostness, of hopelessness, Father, but you sent your Son into this world so that we might have life, that he would come and save us from our sins. I just pray that you will help us to know who Jesus is, and that as we come and know of him more, we will desire more of his message to be spoken through our lives and through the people around us. I just pray that you will help us to figure out how we can take the people that are around us, the ministries that we're involved in, and use those to reach people who do not know you or are in hopelessness right now, Father, as we once were. Help us to be your light into a dark world, Father. Help us to be like the suffering servant who came to be a light to the Gentiles. Father, help us to be part of that light. Help us to show truth and righteousness forward in your life to those around us, Father. We ask this in your son's precious name.